and I wanted us to talk about the Gospel of John today. It has been, for me, the biggest challenge, but I would also say it's been the biggest payoff, the greatest payoff. My uh, New Testament professor in seminary was a man named Luke Johnson, and in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he says that John is a witness to Jesus so simple and so powerful that its influence on Christian consciousness is unsurpassed. John has a very powerful witness for us. But John is tricky. There have been many times in our study uh, on John, the group that meets in the Garden Chapel, where we read a verse of Scripture and we say, hmm, or we say, I don't know, what's that about? I have a friend who, um, when he talks about Bible study, when he describes Bible study, he says it's kind of like eating fish. You know, when you're eating fish every now and then, you're going to get a bone. And you take that bone out, you just can't digest it, and you just put it on the plate. And you end up with a small pile of bones. Well, Bible study says it's kind of like that. There's stuff that we can't digest that we just take out. We leave there on the center of the table, and we say, hmm, maybe for later. Uh, It is often said about this gospel, about John's gospel, that it's like a pool that is uh, safe enough for a child to wade in, but it's deep enough to drown an elephant. This is the Gospel of John, but we're going to try to stay afloat today as we look at the first few verses of the Gospel of John. Now, like all four Gospels, the Gospel of John is anonymously written. Uh, It was unsigned. Whoever wrote John, whoever wrote Mark, Luke and Matthew, the author did not say, write their name on the document. They did not say, this, this is to the community uh, that I, you know, whatever community they came out of from John, from Mark, as Paul did when he wrote to communities. This is an unsigned document. So this gospel doesn't mention a disciple named John, but we know from the other three gospels that the disciple John is left out. John's name is missing. And a a couple of times in John's gospel, there's this unnamed disciple. The first time happens in the first chapter of John uh, where uh, the gospel talks about Andrew and another disciple. And so this unnamed disciple, I think most think the unnamed disciple would be the author and that that author would then be John. We can't be 100% certain, but that's certainly what tradition tells us, that this unnamed disciple who is mentioned a couple of times, who's left out uh, of any direct reference, is uh, the author of the gospel. And three times in this gospel, there is a disciple mentioned who is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there's some scholarly debate about the identity of this disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, Traditionally, the disciple is again identified as John, and thus you have have heard of before the beloved disciple being John. But again, we're not certain. Some scholars say that this um, beloved disciple is in fact the identity of the reader who is reading the Gospel of John. Others say that the identity of the beloved disciple isn't even one of the twelve. So, you know, that, again, is an interesting question for scholars, but tradition tells us that that's John. Uh, The gospel, this gospel is generally recognized as being the latest gospel written. 
uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke being written first, and then John written around the year 80 or 90. And it's very different from the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels um, begin with Jesus' human origin. You know, you'll, you'll recognize that nativity story as coming from Matthew or coming from Luke, but that's not where John starts. John doesn't start with Jesus' human origin. John starts with Jesus' divine origin. The other three Gospels say that Jesus' ministry lasts one year, and John tells us that this is a three-year ministry. The other three Gospels tell us that there are numerous miracles that Jesus performed, numerous healings and exorcisms, while John tells us that uh, over the course of Jesus' ministry, there are three healings, and then the commentary that I looked at said one, resuscitation, which I, I don't know, I might say a resurrection there. We're talking about Lazarus, the story of Lazarus, and John's gospel tells us that he's dead for three days before Jesus comes back, it comes and brings him back to life. Uh, the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that there's one Passover during Jesus' ministry, and John tells us that there are three Passovers over the course of his ministry. There's, so there's one trip to Jerusalem by Jesus and the disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in John, there are uh, three trips from Galilee to Jerusalem. The other three Gospels often have Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is like. In fact, next week in the sanctuary, David's sermon is titled, The Main Thing. And in that sermon, he's going to talk about the kingdom of God because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is the main thing that Jesus talks about, the kingdom of God is like. But in John, it's a little bit different. In John, we hear out of Jesus' mouth, I am. I am the living water. I am the bread from heaven. I am the one true vine. So that's a little bit different in John's gospel too. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have very compact narrative units. And uh, John has lengthy drama, uh, drama-like scenes. So uh, John is, is very different. There are some points of contact that John has with the other three Gospels, but most of what is in John is not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and most of what is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is not in John. So what do we do with this? What do we make of this? I like uh, an illustration of... Uh, an Episcopal priest, Jane Patterson, when she uh, teaches the Gospel of John, she talks about photos that have been taken of her dog. And she says over the, the course of the last few years, she's taken many photos of her dog, uh, color photos, one where the dog is running, one where the dog is sitting. But in these photos, you see the whole dog and you look at these pictures and you say, that's a picture of a dog, that's Jane's dog. But more recently, she says she had a picture taken of her dog by a photographer, like an artist photographer. And this photographer took a picture of her dog, and in this picture, you mainly see the dog's nose. dog's nose is front and center. And you see his ears flapping, and you see his tongue. And then that artist took some chemicals, and he made the picture look like the dog is licking the camera. And that's a picture, she says, of an experience of my dog. That's what being with my dog is like. So then she goes on to say that John's gospel is an experience 
experience of Jesus. It's what an experience of God is like. That's John's gospel. And I think that's what we do. That's what we that's how we make of all the differences that are in John's gospel and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is an experience of God. This is an experience of Jesus. Now, the opening verses of John, I think, are, are such a complete introduction to the gospel that even before we get to the story of Jesus, the story of this experience of God, we know a great deal about what is going on. N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar, says that in this prologue, in these opening verses of John, the first 18 verses of John, there is the meaning of everything Jesus was and is and did. So let's start with verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What an ingenious way to start a gospel, to declare the good news. In the beginning, John writes, no self-respecting first century Jew or no Bible reader today can read these words and not immediately think of the opening words of Genesis. Remember the opening words of Genesis in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. John's gospel is not just a story of a man named Jesus and his disciples. John's gospel is then tied to the story, the story of the Bible. It's tied to the story of God and the world. John's gospel is the story of the creator God creating something new with his much-loved creation In the beginning was the Word. Now remember from the creation story, Word. We remember that in the first creation story of Genesis, God creates with His Word. God speaks the world into existence. And because those first hearers of this prologue in John would know the creation story so well, I think it's important for us to hear the creation story today. So I've asked for Michael to read it. I want you to hear a different voice for a little bit. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening And there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. 
to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation. I skipped translations, didn't I, Dinah? Okay. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Thank you. That's a long passage, but I'm reminded that it's Ray Vanderland that told us that by age 10, 11, 12, that a good a good Jewish boy in the first century would already have the first five books of the Bible memorized. So I have that whole thing memorized. But did you hear what was repeated over and over in that passage? God speaks, and it's so, and it's created. God says, let there be light, and there's light. God says, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry ground appear, and it's so. God speaks, and creation happens. So we do get what John is telling us. In the beginning was the Word. Yes, in the beginning was the Word. The creative, 
the creating force of the divine. Some scholars say that not only does this opening verse make sense to the first century Jew, but it would also make good sense to the first century Greek. In some schools of Greek thought, the universe was uh, referred to as the cosmos, an ordered place. And beyond the universe, what was behind the universe, ordering the universe, was referred to as logos, or the word. So John, in this opening sentence of his gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, is reaching out not only to the first century Jew, but to the first century Greek as well. So verses 1 through 5, we'll speed up a bit here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. The word creates life. Not a new role for the divine. And life uh, is the light of all men, is what the New International Version says. Jesus' life is the light of all people. Jesus' life is our guide or our light. This is why we would read more of this story John draws us in with these words. The story of Jesus' life will be our light. It will guide our path. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Or the NIV, the New International Version, says the darkness did not understand it. Regardless of which way we translate that, did not overcome it or did not understand it, there's a conflict that John wants us to be aware of between the light and the darkness. The darkness either doesn't grasp the light, or the darkness doesn't master the light, or both. Both work, I think, with the rest of John's story. Either the darkness is confounded by Jesus, by God's word, or the darkness can never get the upper hand. The darkness can never conquer the light. This is true in the Jesus story, too. And maybe they're both true. Maybe they go hand in hand. Darkness and light encounter one another. And in the end, darkness says to light, foiled again. You always confuse me. You always outsmart me. I can never win. Verses 6 through 9. Let's move on. 6 through 9 says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Here is, in these verses, is the first human player in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist is introduced. Now, John the Baptist has a slightly different function in this gospel. He is never in this gospel identified as the Baptist, although I'm referring to him as John the Baptist because I don't want to confuse him with the author of the gospel. And he is never called the forerunner of Jesus in this gospel. His sole function in John's gospel is to witness to Jesus. He came as a witness to testify to the light. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. And I think, I believe, 
on a personal level, these verses take a lot of the pressure off of me. God's expectation of me is never that I would be the light. You and I don't have to be the light. This is not our responsibility. We just point to the light. As John pointed to the light. There it is. There's the light. It shines. Isn't that cool? Doesn't that make my path more clear? You can have that light too. It is not, as I sometimes think, watch how cool and smart I am. You can have that too. It is instead what John's gospel tells us. Watch Jesus. Watch what the light does here. This light can make your path clear as well. The true light in verse 9, it says, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. The end of this section reminds us of the truth of the incarnation. The divine is coming to be part of the earthly realm. The divine is mixing with us in human form. The story of John's gospel, it is truly a story of the divine gift for our world. And I like what the commentary that I looked at by a scholar named Rodney Whitaker says. It says, there's a universal significance to this light. Jesus doesn't come just to a small elite group, nor does he come to a single nation or culture. Jesus comes for everyone, living in every time. And at the heart of this story is Jesus' identity as the one true light. Uh, Rodney Whitaker goes on to say, now we may experience light in other, we might see a glimpse of it in other philosophies, other places, other religions. But if you buy into this gospel story, if you believe this story that John is telling, this gospel story, you say that every light is derived from the one true light, from the one who became incarnate in Israel. Every light is derived from the Jesus story, the one true light. So it holds true that we would experience pockets of light in our everyday lives. We all, I believe, have different corners of the world. And John's gospel describes Jesus as the light. So my question for you this morning is where have you seen the light in the last week or two? Now, I will tell you that a room set up like this would intimidate me because I'm a back row student. I want to sit in the back and not say anything to anyone. But I would like to, but what I would like to do right now is just give you a couple of minutes, if you're brave enough, to share with the person sitting next to you. I'll give you two or three minutes. Won't be long, won't be painful to answer this question. And the reason that I think that we can all answer this question, where have you seen the light in the last week or two, is because the light is so prevalent out there. And we're all in different places in the world. I don't believe there's a wrong answer to this question. As I was thinking about this question, I think in the last week where I uh, most recently saw the light is doing, when I do a hospital visit, I'm not at the hospitals all the time, but I go once a week. And when I go to the hospital, I see the light there. I visit with someone when I pray with them. Or when I volunteer at my child's school as a mentor, I experience the light there through the child that I get to spend time with. 
So my question for you is, where do you see this light that John is describing? And I'm going to give you two minutes. That's about all, all the time we have. Two minutes for this question. Okay, we're going to forge ahead. I do think it's an easy enough question to answer. I believe it's an easy enough question to answer because the light is so prevalent. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13 now. Beginning in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world came into being through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to what was His own, And his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Now, verse 10, at first, looks a bit like verse 3. Verse 10 says, he was in the world And the world came into being through him. Remember verse 3 said, All things came into being through him. And without him not one thing came into being. But verse 10 says, He was in the world, the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. So instead of saying, Without him no one thing came into being, it says the world didn't get it. The world didn't know him. John's Gospel often talks about the world. And when John talks about the world, he's not referring to creation in general, but instead it's it's more like humanity. And it's not just humanity, but it's this piece of humanity that turns its back on Jesus. It's not a particularly positive term in John's Gospel. Later on, when Jesus is praying... 
he says in his prayer, my disciples, they are not from this world as I am not from the world. The world is the human piece of creation that has turned its back on God. So the irony, I think, is that humanity owes its very existence to the Logos, to this creative force of the divine, but it turns its back. It doesn't know the word. It doesn't recognize the word as the word walks among them. What people know um, is important in this story uh, whether or not people believe in Jesus or in John's gospel will be, ter- will be determined, determined by what they know uh, and what they see. So John's gospel tells us that there are some who see the word, who experience the word, and who, ter- who turn their back on the word then, who reject the word. Those are the people that John refers to as the world. Now, There is in John's gospel a very fluid concept of Jesus' identity that we're already picking up on. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is light. Jesus is life. I think John wants to ask us, do you recognize this about Jesus? Do you see it? Do you see that Jesus is the creative force of the divine? Do you see that Jesus is the light? And sheds light on your path. Do you see that Jesus is life? Those are the questions I think John's gospel has for us. And at the end of this section, through verse 13, uh, there is a note of hope. Even though uh, we're talking about the rejection of the word, John wants us to know that there are those who don't reject the word, but who accept, they accept the word and they believe. Those are given power. John's gospel says, they're born of blood. They're, I mean, I'm sorry, they're not born of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but they're born of God. They're given power to become children of God. They're born of God. So this new birth, this divine birth, uh, it doesn't belong to the world, and it's not limited by the constraints of the world, John wants us to know. It's a life that is beyond what we've been limited to. Okay, let's move on. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Again, uh, like what we talked briefly about in verse 9, what's so amazing to John, I think, is the incarnation, that the divine would become human, that the word becomes flesh, lives among us, And we have seen his glory. Rudolf Boltmann, who uh, was a respected German theologian of the 20th century, wrote in his commentary on John that it is Jesus' sheer humanity that he is the revealer. And he capitalizes revealer with a capital R. Two very important things to know about Jesus, I think, in this part of the prologue. These two things are held together in tension throughout John's gospel. And these two things create or make up the great mystery about Jesus' identity. The Word, capital W, was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
He is the Logos, the Word, the creating force of the divine. That's the first part. The other part is the Word became flesh. The Word is human, as we are human. Human and God. This is the great mystery of the Incarnation. And John says that the mystery of the Incarnation is full of grace and truth. The great gift. Now, there could have been, I suppose, an incarnational experience for the world that was all about God's power, don't you think? All about divine power. That would have been frightening and overpowering. But John tells us in this prologue, that's not the experience of the early Christian community. The experience is Jesus is God, Jesus is human, Jesus is grace and truth. And this, I believe, is something very important for us to know about Jesus' identity, and it's something that John really has a sense of urgency about for us. In verses 15 through 17, hang on, we're almost through. Start in verse 15. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay, verse 15 uh, in, in the New Revised Standard Version, which I think is what's up on the screen, it's in parentheses, verse 15. And this verse in parentheses is John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. John the Baptist says, Jesus came before me. Jesus was with God in the beginning of the time. This is John's, John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus. And then in verse 16, I like the um, NRSV uh, because it says that we've all received grace upon grace. It's so much grace in Jesus Christ that it has to be repeated. Not just one grace is enough. It's grace upon grace, a superabundance of gifts for the believer, for the follower of Christ. And verse 17, I believe, is a reminder that Jesus is a continuation of the gift given to the Israelites, the law that was given through Moses. John's gospel doesn't diminish the Old Testament law, but instead John's gospel wants us to know that Jesus came as a continuation of that law, fulfillment of that very law. Okay, one last verse, and then you can say you studied the whole prologue today. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And this is the conclusion of the prologue, the conclusion of the introduction to John's gospel. Jesus makes God known. The Greek verb that's used here, no one has ever seen God. It's God it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The Greek verb that's used at the end of that verse to make known has the same root as the Greek word, or, or as the word exegete. Now, um, here's your big theological term for the day. Uh, exegeting is something that uh, seminary students do and, and preachers try to do, try to attempt to do. They take a biblical text and they try to pull out the truth of that text. Uh, I had a seminary professor that would tell us not to eisegete, which uh, that meant don't cram yourself into the text. 
when you're preaching, but pull out the truth of the text, what's really there. So to exegete something um, is to take the biblical text and to pull out the truth, to reveal the truth of the text, to let the text stand on its own. So since that's the same, it comes from the same Greek root uh, as this verb used here, Jesus is then the exegesis of God. Jesus reveals God's truth, brings out the clearest explanation of God. Jesus is the best interpretation of God. And also in this verse is the idea that Jesus is God's son, is close to the Father's heart. John's gospel wants us to know of this very close, intimate relationship that Jesus has with God the Father. A biblical commentary suggests that part of the prologue or all of the prologue that we've read this morning, these 18 verses, first existed as a hymn in the early Christian community. So I I think this is an interesting thought, that the practicing Christian community of the faith would know these, these things to be so true about Jesus that they would know them in their hearts, that they would recite these words, that they might even sing these words an important part of John's gospel, and it does give you the tools to read the rest of John's gospel. You know what John's message is just by reading these first 18 verses. I want to encourage you to continue to study John's gospel. Let me pray for us. Gracious and loving God, we thank you and we praise you this day that you sent your Son to be the new creating force among us and for us. Lord, we thank you that your Son is light and life to us. And we thank you and praise you that that light and life is available for us even today. And so, Lord, as we leave this place, We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to see where you are creating and where your light is shining. And also enable us, Lord, to give your life to other people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so here's the special announcement that I have for you about the church's anniversary. We're celebrating 100 years beginning today for the next year of Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. The special announcement is they have um, anniversary cookies for us at the back. (laughs) So as you leave this morning, make sure that you get your anniversary cookie. Have a great week.